Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN, Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? You're trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. Uh, you could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good night, whatever time of the day it is, Entrepreneurship and Leadership channel on the NBN listeners. Today we've got a very special guest, Renato Beninato. Renato, why don't you introduce yourself to our, to our listeners? Well, um, I'm, I'll, I'll start with uh, the things that are controversial. Uh, because one of the hardest th- questions that people tend to ask me is where am I from? And I, I, I have three citizenships. I was born in Brazil and I consider myself a Brazilian. I have uh, Italian citizenship because my great-grandparents moved from Italy to Brazil in the 1800s. And I have been living in the United States for 20 years and I have acquired American citizenship living here. I have... Um, been working since I started my first company at the age of 23. I started a translation company in Brazil. And so it's been almost 40 years in uh, the language services businesses. I have started five companies and I have worked as an executive in four other companies. So you've been busy. Well, I I, I haven't been unemployed. (laughs) That's one of the advantages of being an entrepreneur is that uh, you're never unemployed. If you, uh, in order to decide who you really are, so I I have have a little test to determine who you really are. Um, When Brazil and Italy play in the World Cup final, (laughs) who are you rooting for? uh, They did in 1970 (laughs) and, and... Italy eliminated Brazil in 1982, so I'm always, I'm Brazilian. Exactly, through and through. So you're Brazilian, that's what I thought, you're Brazilian, mm-hmm. that's, 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 that. and, and you know, America's, I guess you're adopted, and they're the least good at, um, at football, soccer, so. Exactly, exactly, mm-hmm. so yeah. when it comes to that test, it's uh, uh, for sure Brazil, and I, I, I enjoy the the benefit of being nine times world champion. Yes, five exactly. For it's Brazil always good to it's Brazil. always good to associate yourself with winners. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and Brazil yes. is a big winner when there it comes to, to when it comes to football. Yes. So um, you said you started your first company when you were twenty three. When you were growing up, did you um, did you know you wanted to have a business? Did you have like entrepreneurs in your family, and or was it a surprise? Was it your what what led you to take that decision to go your own way rather than do, or what was normal for people when you were growing up? Well, my my journey is uh, an interesting one because my father was the son of a shoemaker, of a cobbler in a small town in Brazil. And, uh, well, a small town in Brazil has half a million inhabitants. (laughs) uh, A a village, a Brazilian village. Yeah, so he was, uh, he worked for the Brazilian National Bank, Banco do Brasil. He made a career in the bank uh, and uh, eventually was sent uh, abroad. So for... Since I was born, since I was one years old, one year old, 
we moved, I lived in Argentina, Paraguay, and then a few years back in Brazil, then Italy, Portugal, Luxembourg, so, uh, and the United States in, in New York. So through, from one to 19 years old, I was moving constantly every three years. And my father was a, an employee, a, a civil servant, a person who had a job and instilled in all of us in the family this idea of having a job, having a career, a safe job uh, as a civil servant with a pension, with all those benefits. And this is what my mother also wanted us to do. I'm the oldest of four brothers. And uh, my father died when I was um, 18 years old. And uh, we moved back to Brazil. I started teaching English. It was my first job. And uh, because of that, somebody asked me to do translations, and I started doing translations. Did you go to university, but, Renato, in this? Did you, you... I did. I, I, I worked, and I went to university, but I studied business uh, and economics, first economics and then business. Actually, my goal, what I wanted to be, was to be a diplomat, because traveling, living in different countries, my schoolmates, my, my friends were all children of diplomats, and, and that's... Uh, the path that I wanted to follow in this concept of being an employee, of being following a career. And, and, and it was a way that I thought could reconcile the opportunity to change countries, move abroad and travel. And uh, <clears throat> the, the, the glamour of, of uh, uh, well-paying job right? so so you, so you were going against a bit what your family were expecting of you like you, that you know and your own expectation to be a diplomat and work in translation they aren't the same yeah. thing at all so was that like was there like a moment when you suddenly figured out that this might actually be a better route for you and how did you come to that because this sounds like a fairly important step in your life given what absolutely happened later. yeah and what happened was that i was uh 23, I had been a, a freelancer for four years working as a freelance translator. I was married. I married when I was 21. Mm -hmm. um, my ex-wife was um, my partner and she did typing jobs at home. Uh, this is pre-computer like transcription era. or just like- no, just... She actually did transcription right. for a translator which okay. was, it's another uh, <laughs> rabbit hole there. But <clears throat> so when I was 23, I realized that uh, if I continued working the way I was working, uh, that was going to be the, my lifestyle for the rest of my life because I couldn't work any more hours than I worked. I went to school, I had a job and I did freelance translation. If I did only freelance translation, 10 hours a day, that was going to be my income. And I said, eh, this is not the lifestyle that I want. This is not how I can continue. So I started in a in a very rudimentary way, outsourcing some of my work and making a margin there. I was in a profession that is uh, essentially at the time and at the level that I was, uh, it wasn't even an industry, it was a craft. So there were this, uh, rules of ethics and you weren't supposed to charge more than uh, 20% uh, or make more than 20% commission on 
the work of others and so on. And um, I didn't have a lot of um, uh, entrepreneurial experience. So I had to learn by myself uh, through my clients. Uh, one of the lucky breaks that I had is through connections and relationships. I started to do translations for the biggest Brazilian um, construction company and for Shell Oil, which was the biggest private company in Brazil at that time. And one of the areas where I ended was translating training materials for the management training program at Shell Oil. Hmm. Uh, how did you get to that? I mean, so you're just some kid. Look, like how did luck. you? No, luck. I, I mean, I, I, it, luck, connections. I mean, like, my, yeah, but do you my talk brother... to the connections? Just, hey, connection, introduce me to another person. No, there. no, no, it's, it's not like that. It's, it's my brother uh, worked, uh, got a, an internship, my y younger brother. <clears throat> All my brothers are younger. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, he got an internship at Shell and he started dating somebody in the human resources department <laughs> okay she needed translation for uh um this course that uh, they were going to give it give to their managers and a conversation oh do you know anybody who can do translation oh my brother does translation i i, I actually say that i got into translation totally by chance because uh there was a film festival there is still a film festival in rio de janeiro and um, in 1982, the, just two weeks before the festival, the Italian translator, the, the guy who did translations from uh, Italian into Portuguese for the Italian movies died. And uh, they didn't have anybody to, to, to do the translations last minute. And uh, so, through connections, somebody asked my other brother, uh, do you know anybody who does translation? Oh, oh, you speak five languages. Can you do this translation for, for, for us? I said, no, no, I don't do translation. My brother likes that stuff. So I, I got into translating movies back in, in the time that you used the typewriter, you worked on film, you had actually to burn the subtitles on the film. And a lot of, and I think that, um, Th those are the things that you can't plan, Richard. It's the 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 lucky breaks that you get the opportunity. But you One have to take you have to you, you have to take them when they come. But I mean, that's really interesting. But was there a moment like you mentioned the financial motivation? You realized that if you were just yeah. selling your time, selling your services, you could never get beyond a certain level. So you started outsourcing. But was it when you were with Shell or with the other? the other company, the construction company, did you suddenly think, hmm, this could actually turn into quite a big business? Was there a moment where you sort of suddenly saw, this is a bigger opportunity than just making a bit of extra money? Was There, was no. a, there wasn't a moment, no. a moment, a light bulb moment, no? No, it, 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 it took me probably 18 years to realize that I was creating value. <laughs> 18 <Until>, years. <laughs> yes. And I'll yeah, tell you why. To, I, I know you, you didn't, you, you weren't living in Brazil for all those years. So no, no, I was. It was there at, after the 18 years that I, I uh, went out of Brazil. But I'll tell you why it took me 18 years. In the beginning, uh, and, and this is very typical of, of, of small businesses, I was reacting. I was 
taking what came to me, I didn't have, I was 23 years old when I started. What do, did I know about the world? I actually quit. You asked me if I went to college. I quit. Uh, I, I dropped out of college in the last semester because there were no cell phones, no internet. I had to drive across town. It took me 45 minutes to an hour to go from uh, my uh, English classes at uh, 6 p.m. My classes started at 7 p.m. I would drive across town, arrive at the university. Oh, no class today. The teachers or the professors or the staff is on strike or uh, the professor didn't show up today, no class. And after a while, you have a job, you're doing freelance work, you have a family and uh, still going to college. I said, I will suspend my, my uh, registration, my, my, my school and I'll come back. Yeah. Never did, right? <laughs> so you don't actually have a degree? uh no not not a formal degree and, and this is the 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 interesting thing because today i teach at three universities and i don't have a degree mm. <laughs> but and that that's an interesting aside conversation i'll come back to the other one is that a big frustration that i had and i had these conversations with fellow entrepreneurs that because you dropped out and and uh, you don't have a traditional career with promotions and things like that, you uh, get distracted and you get frustrated and you have this inferiority feeling that you didn't uh, achieve a degree or something like that. So when I moved to New York and I was a VP at a very big publicly traded company, I tried to negotiate an MBA with, my, uh, with the CEO of the company and um, he said, why? I mean, you, you, you are a, a, an executive in the biggest company in your industry. Why do you want a degree? You didn't want to get here. You, you didn't need one to get here. But the interesting, the, there were two things that took away my, my frustration with not having a degree. One was that I needed to get an equivalency of my education for, for visa purposes here in the United States. And uh, uh, according to the immigration service in the United States, every two years that you spend as a senior executive in mm. a, a company count like one semester at uh, in college. So uh, 18 years as a business owner counted essentially like uh, uh, an education, a four and a half, a full education. The other uh, thing that changed my perception about education was when I read um, uh, a data point that the key indicator of success is not the degree, the university from where you get your degree, it's not finishing university, it's being accepted to the university. So. Uh, 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 Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, they never finished the university. The fact that they were accepted at prestigious university was the, the key indicator of success. Okay. I was at, accepted at Cambridge University in the UK when I was uh, 18. I could have gone and studied there. I uh, was accepted at PUC. I went to the best university in Rio de Janeiro. So uh, uh, I, those milestones were, that milestone is the, the most important one. It's not finishing the university, it's getting in. 
after that assume, <clears throat> Renato, i would assume that um if you had to this is something that we talk about richard and i also go back and forth on richard comes from actually cambridge university and his father was an oxford professor and we have uh I, so from your perspective how important let's say for for young people i mean like how important is it like which would you rather have an education or would you rather have experience um w like what's your i i i think what a <laughs> Okay, this is a, a, a conversation that I've had a few times, even with my kids, is that um, the university tries to teach and codify the experience that people like us have gained, right? What you're taught is a, a system of knowledge, a structure of knowledge that was acquired by people who have done things. It's not by people who have studied things, it's people who have done things. And those things that have been done become structure, become a, 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 a code, a codified uh, uh, approach to knowledge, and that is what is taught at the university. So uh, uh, I believe, uh, and, and my, my brothers make fun of me. It's funny. I'm mentioning my brothers a lot, and, and, and <laughs> they were uh, they're obviously probably... instrumental to all your breaks. Uh, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> because one of the things that uh, I've learned also, like that thing about entering the university, is that the longest relationship that you have in your life is with your your siblings, right? Because your parents die, uh, your children uh, survive you. They come later in your life. Uh, your your spouse comes into your life when you are uh, an adult, and the longest relationship that you have since you start living until you die, your your the people who are closer to you are your siblings, and they are your test environment, they are your trust environment, and so on. So, um, and we are four brothers. We live in four different countries, and we are in constant communication. But uh, th there is this challenge, right? Uh, we are four, two of us have professional careers in companies as executives in companies, and two of us are entrepreneurs and business owners and so on. So, uh, but what they used to, to make fun of me and challenge me in the beginning was that I had all these ideas. I, I, I was the idea guy. Oh, I'm going to make money doing this stuff. Oh, let's copy this idea and bring it to Brazil and let's make it big. And uh, I always have this, this so big what stage, what, what stage in your life was that? You said that you didn't think of business earlier. So was that later when you had the, when you had the translation business? Or? No, throughout, throughout the process. After I, I established my business and, and going back to that uh, line of thought, uh, it took me a while. I learned a lot through the translations that I accepted, right? Uh, 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 one interesting thing about translation is that you're forced to read what you're translating. And because of the uh, uh, niche where I ended up, which was essentially training and education and, and uh, management training, I learned a lot about management structure. Oh, and there is a parenthesis. There was a period while I had my business that uh, I took uh, a job at Arthur Anderson as a trainee. Uh, I applied for a job. I had this idea that it would be great to have a job at, a, at an interesting company. And I almost forgot about this, but I spent a year and a half uh, being a tax consultant at What did you do Arthur with your translation Anderson. business? 
uh, my wife, who had a job uh, before, she quit her job and she continued with the business. Okay. And I took this job that didn't make any money at Arthur Anderson. And I must say, uh, Arthur Anderson and most of these consulting companies, they have the same um, onboarding approach. Uh, they put a hundred young men and very few women at the time, maybe three women <laughs> in a hotel room and taught us everything about accounting, uh, uh, audit, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, business processes and, and, and before you could go to the market. I was part of a small group uh, of this, among this 100, there were six of us that were put into a new business line that Arthur Anderson at the time in Brazil, which was their tax consulting business. So I had an extra two weeks of training on taxation. Um, and uh, it was, that was my, my education really. Yeah, that's, that, that sounds like a high level. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Renato, I have to ask you though, because like, I know, I know this because I know you and I've heard this story, but you have to share it with the listeners. The, so, yeah, because like you're talking about very formal things, but I like, uh, I, for me, you've always been also sort of a guerrilla style, like do things, shoestring style. And you're, cause you're sort of like this now, this refined experienced business guy, but I like to go to the start and you, I like the story about how you landed, I think it was a million, it was a million dollar account. My, or my you, know, you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. It's, it's, it's very, very funny because one day, and this is where relationships and, and participation in, in groups is very important. I have uh, been very involved in associations from the beginning, right, uh, of my career. So I was part of the Brazilian Translators Association. One day, one guy from Ireland calls the Brazilian Translators Association and says, Oh, what is the biggest translation company in Rio de Janeiro? And uh, the, the, the secretary of the association says, I cannot give you that information. This is a professional association. I cannot uh, <laughs> help you with that. So next day he gets his wife to call in and say, I'm a translator, I'm moving back to Brazil. Are there any members of the association that own translation companies? And the assistant says, oh, Renato Beninato, he, I was the guy who brought chocolate and flowers and things for the meeting. So top of mind, she remembered me. So this guy calls me and says, hey, do you do localization? And I go, what the hell is localization? I have no idea of what it is. And for our listeners, localization is translating software basically, right? And I said, sure, what do you need? Tell me more. And the guy explained what, what, what localization was. And uh, uh, we moved to, I went to Dublin three days later and we started doing localization. But this is not the story that you were asking me about. That's not the million dollar story. This is how it's essentially, and, and from an entrepreneurial perspective is never say no, right? Say yes. Give me, give me more, tell me more. If you don't know what the, the, the prospect is talking about, tell me more. This is a fantastic uh, line to learn. <laughs> tell me more and let them buy from you instead of you selling to them. 
But what I got a call, this was a, a really fun one. I got a call from a guy that I met at a conference in at the ATA conference in the United States. I had my office in Brazil and the guy calls me and says, hey, Renato, uh, we've been working with you uh, for a couple of years. We're very happy with the quality of your services. Do you do Spanish? And I said, oh my God, another American that doesn't know that we don't speak Spanish <laughs> in Brazil. In South America. <laughs> but I, I, I sh shut up and say, tell me more. <laughs> what do you need? Uh, oh, no, we have this project and, and it's quite big, but uh, we need to have a very good price for translation. Uh, do you do Spanish? And I said, how big is the project? Eight million words. I do a quick calculation. Say, it's about a million dollars. Of course we do Spanish. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, hang up. I call uh, three people, and uh, one in Chile, one in Colombia, and one in Argentina. And again, here, uh, a lesson on sexism and, 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 and not really uh, uh, having checking your biases. Uh, I called two guys, one in Chile and one in Colombia. Uh, I said, I need to hire 25 people in one week to start working on this project. Can you do that? Oh, no, it's impossible. I don't know 25 translators and so on. I called this young woman in Argentina that I had met at another conference. And she says, sure, I'm coming to Rio tomorrow. <laughs> so exactly. she comes to Rio. We set up this organization. Uh, long story short, uh, within a month, we had uh, 25, we had 100 candidates for the position. Wait, Renato, there's more. Are you going to get to the part where there's the visit to the school? Isn't there a visit oh, to the school? Oh, this is <laughs> this You're missing is the, be the best bits. <laughs> the best part is that the client wants to see our office. Exactly. We don't have an office. So uh, these, these are the moments that entrepreneurs remember. <laughs> yes. So we don't have an office. We, we don't even have a company yet in Argentina. Right, right? Exactly. So I tell my partner, what can we do? And she says, I have a client who has a computer school and it just happens that is school vacation. So the building is empty. Uh, I can ask him to lend us a room. So, and, and by the way, parenthesis, this guy works for her today, right? Mm. He is her employee today. So uh, we go to this beautiful house in, in, in downtown Rosario in Argentina, and he gives us like a, a closet almost. It's a small room, empty room that is available on, on the attic of his uh, office. And we go there and we set up an office with computers. There are not enough um, outlets for us to plug in all the computers. We put a phone. She invites two of her translator friends to come in and to fake that we're translating <laughs> there. So the client walks in. And as he walks into the, the, the school, he sees on the right side a room with 20 computers. On the left side, another room with 20 computers. This is CRT, cathode ray tubes, uh, big, big uh, PCs. And we walk upstairs and we go to our office and we sit and we had a conversation. And the guy said, well, this is fantastic. We can put people working in this room. We can train them in Trados, which was the, the, the translation memory at the time. And uh, and the first impression was what sold the project. He, he was going to visit two other companies and he said, no, we're going with you. And 
Next thing, we had uh, boxes and boxes and boxes of, of, of uh, manuals to translate. It was a, a combined uh, cycle turbine that was uh, sold to Mexico by GE, and we had to translate all the assembly and training manuals for that. An amazing project. It took us eight months to finish the project. I love that. Story. That was fun. That was, I bought a new car. There. I bought a new apartment. <laughs> but, 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 but I'm still going to drill down a bit into select at what stage, because, you know, you're clearly, at the stage you tell that story, you are being very entrepreneurial. Yeah. Earlier, you were a translator who took on a few extra projects. And yes. I, I'm just like, can you like fish out? Was there a, because once you sort of, you did the million dollar calculation was there must have been a moment when you thought this is a bigger deal this i, I can get rich you know i, I can make yes. serious money out of this okay, and i'm just wondering so what when when was that it's 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 a it's a it's a little trip down memory lane here now that we're having this conversation i'm going back there were a few instances where i i i was approached i didn't have sales i was approached for projects that were bigger than what i could handle uh, and I had to build teams of, of translators and I started hiring and, 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 and so on. So I, the first step was to rent an office, right? So, uh, it, this is, it's funny because I'm talking to investors these days and private equity, and they talk about what is your, your business thesis, right? So. I didn't know this language. My business thesis in 1983 was that there was going to be, there must be a demand for emergency typing services because I had invested in buying three electric typewriters. And so I rented an office three blocks from the Rio de Janeiro courts, right? So our thesis was that there would be this, this bunch of people uh, that needed uh, rush jobs, and we would be there, we would charge a ton of money for typing petitions and, and things like that. Uh, I didn't do market research. Uh, there was a, a service inside the courthouse that offered that, that service already. But we called our company because my wife is the fastest typist you, you, you've ever seen. And her brother was also amazing. And I was, I, I was good, but not as fast as they were. So my first company was called TransType, Translation and Typing. And we thought our thesis that was typing was going to be the big thing. And we would do translation <laughs> on the side. And within three months, uh, we had to expand our office. We had to rent the office next door because the demand for translation was much higher. As we move forward, uh, I read a book called, and you mentioned this word before, uh, Kimon, uh, um, uh, Gorilla. I read a book by Jay... Levinson. Uh, Levinson, uh, Gorilla Marketing, back in the 80s. And I basically memorized that book. It's, it's a brilliant book, and I still use a lot of those uh, theories and techniques. So what I did... I team up, teamed up with two other translators in a work group at the Brazilian Translators Association 
two translators that were more technology driven. And one of them, an older person, uh, he was 50 years old, he was really old, I was in my 20s. And uh, we, we started discussing where is the money in the translation business? And uh, the, the three of us started talking and we realized that there was a lot of translated books in the Brazilian market. So um, we needed to figure out how the translation process happened. And we went and we dissected the, the, the book translation market and we identified that a lot of money was spent, a lot more money was spent in uh, proofreading and uh, uh, typesetting the, the book than uh, actually translating the book. The cost of translation was something like 20% of the cost of the production of the book. So this guy who was, who was not an entrepreneur, he was just a, a smart guy, um, said, we should figure out how to get this whole, uh, take care of the whole process. So we figured out a process where we would translate, proofread, and typeset the book and sell the, the whole thing in a shorter period of time to the publishing house. And um, once we figured that out, um, we, we bought one computer that we did the time sharing uh, from 6 a.m. to noon. It was one of the translators from noon to 6 p.m. It was me from 6 p.m. to midnight. It was the other uh, translator that owned the, the computer. My first investment eventually was to buy the whole computer, for, buy, buy them out, right? Uh, $3,000 was the cost of a computer, oh which was God. a fortune for That's us. crazy. It's a lot today. For yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then, uh, well, and you have the import tariffs and yeah, all yeah, this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, at, at one point, I wrote eight letters to publishers in, in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. And um, the eight of them responded. But one... Uh, was a, a, a publisher who published, um, how do you call this, uh, Panini, like Panini, the, the football stickers and things that you collect, that kids collect. And they had bought the rights to translate Fodor's travel guides oh, nice. into Portuguese. So the, the publisher calls me and said, I have 18 guides that um, I need translated in one year. Can you do this with your process, with typesetting, uh, proofreading typesetting? You, you give me, we promise to deliver the film that they can go straight to offset print, printing. Uh, I'm talking this early 90s. Uh, I went from four, five employees to 26 employees. I rented a whole floor. I had one office in a 10 office uh, per floor building and I rented a whole floor. I bought eight computers. Uh, I hired uh, typesetters that worked during the night in a newspaper 
and they worked uh, four hours doing typesetting for us. So I put in a whole operation and uh, this was the biggest opportunity that I had at the time, but also my biggest failure, my biggest uh, mm -hmm. lesson learned in, in the process because I put all the eggs in one basket. This was 90% uh, um, uh, of my business was in the hands of one customer. Brazil was going through hyperinflation. And at the beginning of this process that had been a government plan to stabilize the economy. So you were forbidden to increase prices and inflation came back and inflation over a period of eight months was over 100%. So I started losing money. My customer went bankrupt in the process oh, because yeah, 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 of, yeah, yeah. of the price freezing. And I had to fire 26 people. I had to uh, uh, break my lease. And I went to, the, to my landlord. I, I was crying. I say, hey, please forgive. I had to pay like three months rent and I couldn't. I didn't have the money. And um, uh, they sued me anyway for the money. It's like when you're down, right? Kick you get you. kicked. You get kicked some more. <laughs> exactly. So it was an amazing, frustrating, terrible experience. My wife uh, went back to the market, got a job. Uh, I had to reorganize the 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 the, the company. And we made a pact that we would never, ever leave any of our clients have more than 30% uh, of our revenue. Right. So, so Renato, where does this fit into the timeline of that million dollar thing? Was that before? This, this was before. This okay. is before. Okay, so yeah. then so. you did the million dollar thing, but I'm kind of curious to just move now past Brazil, like, so, because you have so much of a long career. I mean, how, how, so, so how did you ever get out? Did you sell this, your company? How did you get out of Brazil? And then what happened after that? Well, very good. So this, this opportunity, I started going to conferences internationally, right? So can you, can you just put a can you just put a date on this, Renato? Whereabouts are we in in what we're decade? talking about? Nineteen ninety five. Okay. Okay. Right. So nineteen ninety five, I am uh, established. I have started in nineteen ninety two. I started going to conferences outside of Brazil. Before nineteen ninety two, it was very hard to travel. Uh, you had restrictions. You needed to. Uh, lend money to the government. There was this uh, 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 mandatory loan that you have. You had to give the government $2,000 to be able to get a visa. It was very hard to travel outside. <laughs> there was a little window, and I was able in 1992 to uh, go to conferences in the United States and Europe. And um, I, I met... Uh, when, when I went to Ireland working for that guy who called me and asked, do you do localization? I met the first large translation companies that did multiple languages in the world. And they invited me to LISA, which was an association of uh, standards. And they had two events per year all over the world. So I started going to these events. And at that moment, I became the Brazil guy. I was the only one from Brazil going to these events. So clients started calling me. Uh, so around 
1995, 96, I already had clients in 12 countries, final clients, uh, large companies, Hewlett Packard, Polar, from Finland, the, doing watches. I had uh, 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 Novell, and I had other translation companies buying my services. And this is where I get the call to do Spanish. I go to Argentina. I set an office in Argentina. I go from 20 employees in Brazil to a total of close to 50 uh, between Brazil and, and Argentina. I bring people from Brazil to train people in Argentina because they, there wasn't a, a professional environment. The internet was just starting in Argentina. My partner was the first individual in her town to have an email address, right? <laughs> so we set up the infrastructure, we, 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 we do all that stuff. And um, I continue going internationally. Now I'm selling Portuguese and Spanish, doing Latin America translations. And uh, I start meeting um, business owners and two companies. First, one company approaches me and say, hey, we have, it's a company in Chicago. We have uh, some extra money. Um, we want to buy your company. You want to buy my company? Why? How? How much? And the guy says, my company made about two million dollars, a million and a half a year. So it was a lot of money. And uh, I had SAP spending $700,000 a year with me. It was a great, great client base. And um, uh, says, I'll give you half a million dollars. I said, half a million dollars. It's just like... Uh, uh, that guy, the mini me guy, was a uh, right. I know I, it's uh, Austin Powers, but I don't uh, know. What Austin the Powers, a million dollars, right? <laughs> so I say five hundred thousand dollars. I talked to my wife, and I said, "Wow, this is a great idea," and uh, um, and we start. We go through the process, and as we're going through this process, I had been to another conference, and there was another guy who was an investor and he wanted to buy my company. And uh, last minute, literally last minute, the night before I signed the papers to sell my company, I called this guy and I say, well, we're about to sign, but you said you were interested in the company. How, how much do you think my company is worth? So he asked some questions and he said, well, uh, considering what you're telling me, I would pay one and a half million dollars for your company. I say, from 500 to one and a half? I didn't know I had this You had no of idea. It's so I funny what no you do now. And, and by the way, for, for, for the part, of, part of this is, an ed we want to educate people, like everyone who makes it in business in different degrees, there's a time in your life when you didn't know things. And it's yes. just, oh, the gr the, there's a, and, and, so, and so if you're listening to this and saying, wow, isn't it incredible he didn't know that I, Kimon, all entrepreneurs, there were stages where you didn't know stuff that later seems obvious. And the great thing about the internet is it's so much easier to educate yourself these days yeah. than it was back then. You didn't but, have that but before. The, but the most ironic thing, you know what's so ironic, is that Renato today, and we'll eventually get to that, He one of the things he does is he helps broker, buys, and sells companies. <laughs> yes. So he knows better than anybody else yeah, what the value yeah. of a you company become is. The, you become an expert in the thing you were ignorant of. I was so <laughs> ignorant. And today, I mean, I, I gave it away. Uh, I, I should have sold. 
Who my did you in, in the end sell it for 1.5 or 500? 1.5. Uh, the the other guy said, "Well, this is if he it was his first offer," and I said, yeah. "Yes." And uh, <laughs> exactly. uh, he he. I said, well, but I have some penalties because we're ready to sign the agreement with this company. We'll pay all the penalties, yeah, no exactly. problem. The but next so Renato, day, he was on back, a plane. You know the market, so you can give us, this is a nice little education, as Richard said, how do selling companies of this size work and what should you have gotten for your business? What did you get? What should you have gotten? And yeah. Yes. Okay. So one, one of the things that I've learned over this, this period and over many transactions now uh, is that the the value of your company in a service business, not in a technology business. There are different ways for you to of evaluate course. the value of their company. But in a service business, it's a multiple of your EBITDA, of your profit, mm -hmm. right? So uh, for business services in general, it's something between, depending on the size of the company, there are little, uh, 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 if you are between, uh, uh, less than $5 million in revenue, uh, it's between three and five times your profit. If you are over $5 million, it could be up to seven times your profit. If you are over $10 million, you can have better conversations. But I, I would say if, you're, if you have more than $10 million in profit, not $10 million in revenue, right. if you have more than $10 million in cash, free cash in your company, that you're generating, you can get better multipliers, right? But the, the key information is that it's a multiplier of your profit. Right. And the calculation that an investor makes is that how much time am I going to, is it going to take me to make this money back? So uh, if I do five times profit, it's going to take me five, five years. If I do seven times profit, it's going to take me seven years, right? That's the metric. That's the, right. the, the calculation. And so in your the, case, with this uh, 1.5 million, what should I, you... I gave my company away because 1.5 million was my revenue. So I was making probably... 60% profit. I was a very profitable company. Wow. Yeah, because I was charging my clients in hard currency in dollars, and I was keeping my dollars uh, in the United States. And I was paying my employees in local currency in, in Brazilian, whatever the currency was, because over a period of 10 years, we changed currency six times in Brazil because of inflation. And uh, Argentina, that also changed currency three times. <laughs> so I was paying salaries. So I paid, I, I had my local expenses paid with my local clients. And I had my profit stashed away in dollars in a bank in New York, that I didn't have to pay taxes on okay, until awesome. at that time, I repatriated that money. And because I had worked as a tax consultant, I knew this. Ah, you knew all the tricks. Well. Exactly. Yes. Now we come full circle. Yeah. <laughs> Just imagine who might be listening, Renato. Be careful. <laughs> well, the law changed. Now it's it's very transparent. Everything yeah. is visible. So I wasn't doing anything illegal. I was just uh, playing. Just, just, just for the record. No. Yeah. <laughs> Renato, you sold, Renato, you sold your company. And then what and, happened? By so the way, you I don't should have, have a job sold my anymore. company for two and a half million instead of one, one and a half. Point million. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but you sold your company and you didn't have a job anymore. And yeah. what are you what are you going to do with your life now? So this was my MBA. The, the 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 I did have a job because I sold my company and I stayed with the company. Oh, okay. So I I I, I moved from being uh, an I I became 
a minority shareholder in the new company. The, the company that bought my company bought five other companies. They were doing a roll-up, right? Okay. And I stayed in the company and I was responsible for Latin America. But because I was more entrepreneurial than the other owners of the different companies that were acquired, uh, the CEO took me around and uh, 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 we had uh, monthly uh, management meetings, not via Zoom, in person in Colorado. Uh, I was traveling all the time. I helped set up our Singapore operation, uh, an operation in the Netherlands, uh, two companies in the United States. So I, I was working closely with the leadership of the company. And it was a fantastic experience. During three years, we, um, we it was my MBA. I, I, I learned how to build teams. I knew, I learned how to open companies abroad in, in different markets. I learned uh, um, leadership skills. We had some- But uh, Renato, I want to stop you here because you already had had quite big organizations in Brazil earlier. It had, you mentioned 20, 25 people. That's quite a lot. And when you were managing people and leading people, because now you're saying that the time you're working with these international uh, acquirers was when you learned, but was it challenging for you to get all these skills of like managing people, making sure people did their jobs properly, worked hard? Where did that come from? Or was it those training manuals for Shell saying the this is how you... The training manuals helped a lot. There's, there's some stuff, there are some trainings like situational leadership and... Uh, 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 there, there's, I can't remember right now, but situational leadership is one that comes to mind because it was very impactful for me. Uh, are things that I translated and I use still today, right? But uh, I think that until I, I uh, managed, uh, until I joined this, this conglomerate, my leadership was more instinctive. Mm -hmm. And when uh, these investors bought our company, I, I had a more structured approach. So we had quarterly board meetings where we needed to present metrics that were established by third parties. I didn't have any metrics for my company. And this is one of the things that I was going to say before. Until I sold my company, my metric is, will I make payroll this month? And it was essentially uh, from the first of the month until the 20th, 25th, I was, oh my God, am I, are we going to make payroll? Are we going to make payroll? Are we going to make payroll? Oh, we made payroll. Three days, three nights of good sleep, and then all over again, right? That sort of explains why you, that sort of explains why you sold your company, though, actually. Yes, absolutely. I, I, wanted, I wanted a paycheck. <laughs> I was so happy to have a paycheck, and it was a good paycheck. And, 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 my problem and, anymore. And actually, but this is... This the, the, is sorry, yeah. i let you finish. Go ahead. No, no. And, and the leadership thing, I think that with this company, I got a more structured approach. So we had a leadership team, and we talked about... Uh, methodologies and approaches and values and principles. I think these were the two big takeaways from the, those three years in this journey was uh, we together as leaders in the company's business owners and executives decided what would be the principles of the companies and of the company and what would be the values. And it's very, it's much easier to lead 
when you can always go back to a, a, a basic principle of your organization. And the number one principle of our company was think like a client, right? Put yourself in the shoes of the client. What, how would you react if you received an email like the one that you wrote if you were a client? Uh, the other one is hire the best people and let them do their job. So hands off, a trust and, and things like that were very important. So things that I did instinctively and naturally uh, became more uh, structured. Co codified. Yes, and I was going to I was going to say that certainly I had this experience in the nineties with my first first visit. But how, how old are you, by the way? You you're fifty six, is that right? Fifty nine. Fifty nine. So you you look a bit younger than you are. Anyway, Thanks. so 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 it was discovering as you have this idea of being an entrepreneur, but actually the stresses of making payroll, dealing with all that stuff. Sometimes you discover, well, it's not actually as nice as you think it's going to be until oh. you experience it. And it sounds to me like you discovered that there was a downside to being the leader as well as an upside. That it was quite, absolutely it, it was quite stressful for you, wasn't it? By the sound of yes, it? because one one of the things when you're especially when you're a startup when you're beginning, those. Uh, people that are with you and, and believe in you and trust you and follow you, those are very, very important people. They're very valuable because they are part of your struggle and they are, in a way, they take a little bit of the risk with you, right? Yes. They're yes. not entrepreneurs, but they, they're there, they believe, they, 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 they see uh, uh, something in you that uh, they believe in and they're going to follow you. There is this wonderful uh, TED talk. It's a very short one about uh, 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 the first how follower. to start a movement. Yeah, the Derek Sivers, how to start a movement. Yes, yes yeah. how to start a movement. And one of the lessons from that is that the, the most important person is not the, the leader, is not the one who starts, is the first follower. Right? Exactly, exactly. So... Uh, um, I, by, by the way, I, I, have, I have to quote this because he says that the first follower is the person who converts the lone nut into a leader. And exactly. I, I, thought, I thought I should call my, my autobiography the lone nut. <laughs> the lone nut, exactly. It's fascinating because you realize that it's absolutely true that those people that were with you in the beginning of your journey, they're probably not the, the, the most skilled. They're probably not the... the, the, the the top of the market, but they're the ones who are going to grow with you and validate you and trust you. And if you come to them, actually, Renato, as I have had to do a few times, they say, hey, I, 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 your salary will be late. And uh, how much do you need to, to get through another week? And they will, they will, they'll stay with you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and this is the, the thing that where you, you learn compassion when you learn real leadership, I think, is when you put those people that are making money for you uh, and give them uh, uh, respect and priority and they see that in you and, and they follow. I mean, yeah. it is true, Richard, if we think about some of the conversations we've had on this podcast, it's this, this is a recurring theme. We talk about the entrepreneurs, we're focused on the entrepreneurs, but actually the, the, the first employees are also somehow they're entrepreneurial employees and and in fact some of the people that have been on here have been those kinds of employees as well they were ready to take a chance not to go with the big firm but to try to go with something that's starting up and you know they can learn a lot as well oh. um and, and, and if you if you're successful if you grow they are rewarded 
right? Yeah. One yeah. of the things that I didn't say in my journey, because after that, I've started two other companies, right? And, and I'm in my hopefully last <laughs> uh, 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 swan here is the, the, the swan the, song, your swan, swan song. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, it's hopefully, but you never know. But the, 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 one of the things that happened during, during the journey that was, was, was quite interesting is that, well, I had this big failure and that was a turnaround, an opportunity to, to start again. But uh, at one point, Unisys was one of my biggest clients. We were translating a lot of content for Unisys, but Unisys had an internal translation department and they sent us the overflow. And then Unisys decided that they weren't going to have that department anymore. They were going to shut down the department. And the two leaders of the department, the, the, the manager and the, a project manager that, and the translator that worked there, came to visit us and they said, oh, we wanted to see how you do this because Unisys is going to close the, the department and we're thinking of starting a translation company to <laughs> compete with you <laughs> and i said what you're coming here for me to teach you how to be my competitor <laughs> and i said why are you going to do that it's so hard to be an entrepreneur and so on so i suggested to that we create uh, a joint venture that we create a separate company where i had all the infrastructure i had the office i had the <clears> computers <throat> i had everything i had dictionaries i had people and they would be minority partners in this. Uh, we would be equal partners in this subsidiary. And eventually, if the business took off, we would merge the two companies. And uh, so uh, no money. It was just they would pay up their capital with uh, work. The, reven the revenue they brought in. The revenue that they generated. And I remember they had to bring, which seemed to be a lot of money, $200,000 in the first year of business. So they actually did, they brought like, they, we had discussions and husbands and parents and everybody involved. <laughs> we did a, a big contract. So I had two companies and uh, so they owned 50% uh, of that company. And I had the other company that me and my wife were the owners. And uh, over the, after two years, we decided that it didn't make any sense to have two companies and we merged the companies and they become, became owners of 30% of the joint company. And my wife and I had 70% and the two of them had 30%. A year goes by and uh, we, we looked at these two young women as a unit and one of them was very, very negative. And after... Uh, two years, she decided to quit. She decided to leave. And we looked at the numbers and I, said, I gave her $10,000 for her share in the company. She left the company. We were, it was a period. And she, one of the reasons why she decided to leave was that we weren't growing as much and, and we weren't getting paid as much. And she decided to take a job somewhere. So she leaves and we find out that this other young woman was a wonderful woman she we 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 equated her with with the bad partner and she flourished and we got uh one other manager that worked in the company and we gave him 10 percent of the company five percent of the company so uh we had 70 percent 
one of them had 25 and this uh, friend of mine had 5%. Two, two and a half years go by, we sell our company for a million and a half. He buys a house. Right, exactly. <laughs> so these people that stayed, that contributed, created, we created a lot mm -hmm. of value for them, right? Mm -hmm. And then we had a second exit because after three years, this roll-up was sold to Berlitz and then my career took a different right. I, I moved right. to the United States. That's how you I ended up moving to the US yeah. and how you basically started to now what what's so interesting for me, Renato, about your whole thing is like because you keep and it was even it's even coming full circle when you were talking about education. But like today, I, I think it's important for people to know that today Renato is a consultant. Basically, he runs a consulting company that, as I mentioned, that does sort of brokers deals, but also basically is advising owners on how to run their company. So I think it's so funny that all this experience <laughs> now has yeah. made you like the professor and the, yeah. as yeah. you said, you're teaching and you're and you're I wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, and you're an author. He's author of a very successful book on um, on translation, which, which is essentially goes back to that conversation of of the academic. Yeah, it's uh, behind you. It's the yellow book behind you. Yes, yeah. it's the general <laughs> theory of the translation company, yes. and it's a book that um, captures all this experience that I gained through uh, doing it, but also consulting with companies in over thirty countries and mm. uh, learning patterns that exist in the companies and what this my business is really about. But the interesting uh, uh, thing about, about this process is that uh, where is this spark of, of uh, entrepreneurship? Where does it come from, right? It's, sometimes it's a little conversation. So I, I went through this journey. I worked with this private equity firm. I was a minority owner in this uh, business that was sold to Berlitz. I moved to the United States. I become an executive in a publicly traded company in the United States, uh, traveling around the world. It was the biggest translation company in the industry at the time. And uh, uh, after two years, I, I left. I went to another company that it was during the dot-com boom. They doubled my salary. So I, I went uh, because of money. And, um, and then after another year and a half, this other company, Opnet, was acquired by a competitor. And I had uh, what uh, an expression that I learned a couple of weeks, uh, weeks ago is that I had a garden leave, right? They paid me not to work yes. and not to go to the competition for six months. And during six months, I'm thinking, uh, I'm looking for jobs. I interviewed, I went to a bunch of places and I said, I don't want to have a job anymore. I'm not, I, I'm an entrepreneur, but what business will I start? And then I remembered a conversation that I had with my boss when I was at um, Berlitz. The CEO was telling me, well, there are some statistics that say that this industry is worth $30 billion. We are the biggest company in the world and uh, we make $130 million a year. Where's the rest? <laughs> Why don't you sell that? I was VP of sales in the company. And I said, this number is wrong. right? And then I realized that uh, my industry didn't have any reliable source of information. It was um, uh, speculation 
everybody had an opinion. Everybody it was a black, had a black hole, a black, a black hole. hole. Yeah. yeah. So I started Common Sense Advisory, which was my first consulting company with a partner that came from Forrester. And we started gathering and, and uh, creating this uh, 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 database of, of information about the industry. And that's and, that's that's when we became your client later because you came and you came and did yes, a workshop for absolutely. our pe- for our people about the translation industry, which became yes. part of our new employee onboarding and all the rest of it. <laughs> and 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 the, the the interesting part of that is that the opportunity was there; anybody could have done that. But uh, it wasn't until I had that question. Sometimes it's a question that yeah. is going to drive you to find an opportunity and build the business around that opportunity. Be, being opportunistic, I want to draw attention that when you talked about the guys from Unisys who came to you and said, you know, teach us how to form a, transla- uh, form a translation company, on the one hand a threat, but you saw how to make it into an opportunity, that it, there are certain times when the opportunities are there and it's a mixture of your skill set, your CV, the people you know. It's not like everyone is in a perfect place to take it, but there were particular times when you saw an opportunity, but then you took action, right? You actually, you didn't just sit there thinking about it, you did it, right? And, and, and it was driven by fear, essentially. Oh, uh, fear, <laughs> okay. <laughs> what fascinating to me, this Renato, about... going to be my competitor. Yeah, <laughs> the, what, what fascinated me, though, about the, uh, the common sense and just basically the shift into, I call it market research or, or consulting, that's a that's a, just a different business. I mean, like what made you like, you know, you talked about, you know, you, you had all this education through like your basically business experience. But what the, like what on earth said, you know, I'm going to try something because, compl- you know, that that requires certain, you know, there's certain protocols and ways that you sell and what, things well, that you produce. You know, you hadn't done any of that before. Uh, <clears throat> another there, there's another lesson in this story, which is which I, I told it in a certain way, your business, in my experience, my business always turns out to be completely different from what I thought it was going to be in the beginning. <laughs> okay. right? hmm. So uh, I thought that I was going to have a typing service near the courthouse and I became a translation company. Uh, when I started Common Sense Advisory, my proposition, I, I remembered this clearly. I was driving, <laughs> I visited a company in Italy I was driving from Bologna to Milan in the highway, beautiful uh, uh, full moon. I stopped the car. I look, I'm looking at the moon and I'm thinking, why am I looking for a job? Let me call, this was after the dot-com bust. There was a lot of people unemployed in the market. Uh, Let me call some people that I know and discuss this idea of starting a consulting company. I had worked as a consultant at Arthur Anderson, but I didn't know the model very well. And I called colleagues from Berlitz. I called other people that I knew from the industry in conferences. And I ended up talking to Don De Palma, who was working at Idiom, which was a software company at the time. And he said, oh, I, I wrote a book and I was thinking of starting a business I already own a brand called Common Sense Advisor. I say, oh, I love the name. We scheduled a meeting. Uh, three days later, we're in, I take a train from New York to Boston. We meet and we have a, a conversation. We start a business and I'm going to the market trying to sell consulting services. And uh, there's no demand for consulting services in 2002. <laughs> Nobody wanted to buy consulting at the time. 
and uh, especially in the translation industry where there was no habit for that. Right, there's no history or culture of it. And, and, a, then, lot, and a lot of the clients are quite small and consulting right. goes exactly. with other big companies, right? Exactly. And, and then, uh, but we reached out to buyers, right? And then me, me, much later, I would find out that uh, uh, translation is not something that is uh, a priority. It's not a, a, a C-level discussion. It's a, it's, a, it's a completely separate story. But the, the story there was that after about three or four months uh, that we, we, we didn't get any clients, we sent proposals, but nobody was signing up. We... Um, decided to publish research, syndicated research. And uh, so we started interviewing. Uh, and over time, I realized that interviewing clients is the best way for you to interview potential clients is the best way for you to sell because you let them talk. <laughs> so we interviewed 75 companies. We wrote this beautiful report that I think it's seminal. It's uh, called The Beggars at the Globalization Banquet. There's a lot of stuff that we learned about the industry in that uh, very, very long report. And um, we went into this uh, syndicated research business. I found some 10 clients that were willing to invest $5,000 in us for us to, to be our seed investment. And, and that's how we started, right? So we'll say, let's have recurring revenue from the syndicated research and, and, and uh, memberships. And then we get uh, money from consulting and the business grew. Uh, my partner was not very entrepreneurial. Uh, so it took me like five years to reach 15 employees. And Nimzi, my current company, we have been in business for three years and I already have 27 employees working in the company. Uh, similar, are, and this is a similar business. It was similar. Again, uh, when I started Nimzi, I thought we're going to make Common Sense Advisory better. Uh, what, what happened to Common Sense Advisory? Did you sell it's it? There, they're great, uh, excellent research organization. They have their style we have a different style. So my business today is very different from what I thought it was going to be in the beginning. So this investment thesis, right? My thesis was that I was going to be a competitor to Common Sense Advisory. We seldom compete with them. We are, there are, the, this industry has grown a lot, but the, there are, the, we, we publish market research, but it's a different style. We do M&A consulting. We work with, uh, uh, technology consulting, we do, we help uh, large corporations. We did a, a, a transformation project for IBM, which uh, uh, it, it's more of a management consulting business than uh, a localization or technology-based business. We help them rethink their uh, business structure. So the, the business becomes the talent that you acquire. Uh, so our team today uh, uh, defines what clients they're going to go after, what business they're going to sell. Uh, we're going into training and we call it NIMSI learning, so e-learning for our clients and things like that. And, and it's all initiatives from the people in the organization. So I took a back seat and uh, I'm more of a, coach, internal consultant, product, then 
uh, an executive in the company because I, I learned how to delegate. Renato, I want to ask you something that, uh, again, it's only because I know you, uh, but I think it's an interesting part of your personality. I've always found you to be um, a first adopter. You're, 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 because it's, but I, I don't know how much this is part of the, being an entrepreneur or not, but like Renato's always the first one to try something new. Like you're probably like the first one on Clubhouse. Like you're probably the first localization person on Clubhouse or whatever, like, cause that's the latest thing. But like, um, is there, like, what is that about? Like, like is it, first of all, it's true, right? You're like the first. <laughs> I'm an early adopter. I totally yeah. uh, uh, jump on, on I, 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 I like to check. It's yeah. like food. I, I think that the lesson, one of the lessons, and I find myself thinking about my father a lot recently uh, because I had this conversation with uh, my kids the other day. It's like, you cannot say that you don't like some food before you try, right? You say, oh, I don't want to eat it. Try it. If you don't want to eat it after you tried it, it's fine. I will accept it. But just because the looks are bad, you don't want to try it. It's not acceptable. <laughs> That's what my father would do. And, uh, and I think that with, with uh, ideas, technologies, new trends and things like that, uh, it's important to be an early adopter. It's, it's adventurous. I mean, I think there's a bit real. of entrepreneurship that's adventure. You're an adventurous person. I would, right? Yeah. And, and, and uh, 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 an important part of this conversation, Kimon, is you fail a lot, right? There is a lot of failure in, uh, in being an early adopter. And uh, if you think, if you ask me about regrets in the business, my biggest regret was that when the internet came to Brazil, I was the 13th company in the whole country to have a dedicated uh, internet connection. I had a class C address, uh, which was, I had a, 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 an IP address that was the whole number, 255, 255, 255, two, from zero to 255. I could sell internet access. I actually started an internet company, but I didn't understand the business model. And I, 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 I gave up because it was complicated. I needed telephone lines and I couldn't, I didn't have the money to buy the telephone lines that needed to be bought at the time. It wasn't a, a service. It was an asset in Brazil. And uh, I could have been a billionaire because I, I had uh, access to the internet before all the billionaires in, in internet billionaires in Brazil. Hmm. There were, it was the, the Brazilian National Bank, the Brazilian Investment Bank, Coca-Cola, uh, uh, all the big corporations. And Renato Beninato. And Lazowski <laughs> Beninato, which was the name of my company. My, my contract with the, with the uh, telecom company was contract number 13, 0, 0, 0, 0, mm. 13. Right. <laughs> but, the, but there's a lesson to jump in, which is, I mean, of course, clearly, you know, early adopter looking into new things, but cu curiosity in how things work, how you can do things better, faster, cheaper, lower your costs. This yeah. is the entrepreneurial mindset. If something surprises you, why? You know, try to understand what, if something makes yeah. you angry, why? You know, and I noticed speed a couple of times. You talked about being the fastest typing service you want to do something fast something else you mentioned do it could you do all those books in a certain amount of time you yeah. know you obviously figured out that 
maybe you're not a very patient person. We figured out that maybe there are other people out there who aren't so patient. And, you know, they will pay extra. Well, time time be, is money, right? Time is money. It's an old it's also, it's also our lives, right?